0: Hello, I'm Christopher Hooten, and welcome to Candela. In episode one, my co-host Alan Schaller and I gave a primer on what to expect from the show. Episode two saw our first photography guest join us, Steve McCurry, and episode three sees the arrival of our first cinematographer. Jeff Cronenweth is a two-time Academy Award nominee, best known for his partnership with director David Fincher. The pair worked together on The Social Network, Gone Girl, The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and perhaps most notably, Fight Club a landmark in film history that pushed the boundaries of cinematography when it was released in 1999. Jeff has worked on several other movies, including One Hour Photo and A Million Little Pieces, and served as a director of photography on music videos for David Bowie, Michael Jackson, Taylor Swift, and Nine Inch Nails. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and let us know what you think of the show on Instagram, where our handle is at Podcast. Jeff Cronenworth, thanks for joining us on Candela Podcast today. How you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thinking about your career in, in cinematography, obviously you have, in your family, it's a huge thing. Your father, Jordan, did Blade Runner, and I understand that like you you started out, he you did some kind of like camera loading and stuff for him, right? Could you just kind of talk a little bit about how what age you first started to uh, think about what it was your father did and kind of be like, this is pretty cool.
1: Well, it it would be back much earlier, like when I was a teen, because I would visit the set quite often, and, and and probably earlier than that. Like, I didn't know exactly what it was that I wanted to do on the set, but I loved the camaraderie, and I loved the team effort, and kind of like, every day was a war, and every day they all went in to try to solve that day's problems and come out uh, a winner at the end, and so I, I loved that idea, and um, uh, I used to spend a lot of time on the on the uh, special effects trucks. And I mean, when I was 10, 11 years old, my brother and I would make Super 8 movies and I learned how to make blood packs and I would strap them to his body and blow them up and you know, <laughs> do all kinds of <laughs> little things with Super 8 films, You know, use my mom's curling iron to melt plastic baggies. And then of course that would wreck the curling iron, but it made great blood packs. And so uh, I was fascinated in the whole industry and it was uh, maybe when I was, Uh, you know, 16, 17, kind of working as a PA on on summer jobs with my dad that I really fell in love with the camera department.
0: I like that you went straight in with uh, blood packs. You know, most people, (laughs) when they're just playing around, would do like some kind of like, you know, kitchen sink drama with dialogue. But no, you were going full action.
1: Oh, yeah. I had to have (laughs) a shootout right away. (laughs) So then, you know, in high school and then I went off to college and uh, I I knew at that point that uh, I wanted to uh, go to film school but an opportunity came along to get into the union and in those days, and that was in like 79, uh, it was very difficult to get into the union and you couldn't really work in in Hollywood unless you were a a union member. And so my dad uh, was about to start Blade Runner, uh, but he felt that it wasn't a guaranteed job on Blade Runner and that it was uh, being a staff member at a commercial production company. And so I took that job at 19 years old and spent two years working at a commercial company called Filmfare as their staff film loader and staff camera assistant and kind of like learned as much as uh, was afforded to me uh, in that capacity and then applied to the University of Southern California's film school and went back and finished college uh, in the film program and then after that started working right away. During school, though, each summer, you know, many opportunities came up and I I uh, worked with my dad on a on a couple movie of the weeks. And then we did a, a little movie called Stop Making Sense with the Talking Heads.
0: Right. Did you feel like film school was worth it? Like me and Alan talk about this a lot, like, you know, some people kind of just try and get their kind of their learning in on, on set or, you know, whatever their field is. And then some people will go to school for it. I don't know. How do you feel about it?
1: I think it depends on the individual, you know. For for me, I needed a couple of years to grow up, uh, and it also was a, as a different era. You have to ask that question at that time where else would you have the opportunity to see the movies that you would get to see in film school? There was no VHS machines. There was no DVDs. There was no, you know, maybe you could go find an old theater in Hollywood and go watch old films when they happened to come up, yeah. but you didn't have a, a a source or resources to do that unless you were in film school. And we, and we got to see the classic movies and we got to have explanations and narratives as to why we were watching them and what about them meant so much. And so, uh, at the time I felt like it was a really good, education and exposing us to all aspects of filmmaking and all the history of it and 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 the great classics that that uh, we are also familiar with and then you know USC at that time over other schools was very hands on and practical. You made, you know, it's a two year program, and each semester of those those four semesters, you made films each time, and each time it got more and more complicated until at the end you couldn't graduate unless you made a group film together that was a twenty minute film, and so um, that whole practice of, of of and the competition involved and the. You know you fought for equipment, you fought for locations. you never had enough money. you depended on talent. You had to be very resourceful. and it's it's the same kind of tenacity that exists in filmmaking for me today. i I learned and watched back in film school, and I think that was a really, really good part of it. I don't know today if those things would still hold true. you know, it's a whole different world now, and uh, you can watch anything you want to watch on YouTube or on any download service and and whatnot, but I still think there's principles about filmmaking and hands-on work that you and 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 listening to uh, professionals that come and speak uh, that have huge advantages. You know, audiences are more sophisticated, film schools more sophisticated, equipment's easier to make, but the expectations are grander. And so I think I think it still serves a purpose well. And I know, for example, and again I went to USC, but Just by chance, uh, they have a program where every year uh, it's an introductory film class where they take one movie and they bring in uh, all the key players of that movie for the semester. And two years in a row, um, they happened to pick uh, Fincher movies, which was Social Network and then Dragon Tattoo. And so Mm. it was kind of fun to go back to the university in that capacity and speak to to the kids. Um, But, you know, Fincher, being Fincher and irreverent as he always is, the first thing he usually would say is that, you know, 98% of you in this class won't be filmmakers. (laughs) 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 And I just look at him like, dude, how can you be so like undermining all these kids' spirit. But that's he was it, right accurate, though. He's accurate me. and right and he was being pragmatic and just going, look, you know, a lot of you are here for this. It's a lot harder than you think it is. It's not this free, glamorous ride. And it's gonna take a lot of work if you want to make it out of it. And so, you know, there 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 it is.
2: <laughs> did yeah. you did you take the edge off it for them? I tried as my I, maybe ninety ninety percent. 80 exactly. or ninety percent
1: But it'll be a really 90%. good ten percent of you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah it's a kindness isn't it people need to know what they're letting themselves in for and how hard it is you know <laughs>
1: Can't yeah, and what it. to expect like it's not like a normal business thing you know this uh, you, uh, fools don't you know I, I suppose there are people that you that make it no matter what but most of us would uh, you know unless you put in the work it's you're not you're not going to be happy with the outcome yeah yeah
0: cool so so yeah so you've been you were fucking around with a Super Eight, and you were you were learning your your craft at, at film school. How how do you take that from there to you know it ended up being Fight Club being your first kind of really big <laughs> job? Well, I mean, not to be not to dwell on something,
1: but going back to the film school thing, I had several friends that we that we all went different directions. You know, I I chose in part because I had a father that was you know very successful, mm. super talented a uh, respected cinematographer who offered me uh, a, a job, which, uh, you know, you'd be a fool to turn down for anybody. But, of course. Uh, and so I went the apprentice apprenticeship route, you know, where I started at the bottom as a film loader and worked my way up to second, then a first assistant, then a camera operator, and then shooting second unit and, and whatnot. So uh, several of my friends out of film school went the other direction. They started shooting industrials right away. Eventually kind of worked their way up to doing music videos. And just about the same time, we all ended up shooting movies. So, you know, it's, it's one man's approach versus another man's. It's whatever your personality can handle and, and what you find most um, exciting to go out and do. You know, I liked watching professionals, masters rather, uh, solve the problems that eventually I'd learn how to solve myself, uh, you know, and I would think that it'd be terrifying to do it all on your own. But then again, if you're doing it and making mistakes on industrials, you figure your way out and eventually, you know, most of us end up in the same place. So I don't know if there's a right right or wrong. I think it depends on your personality.
0: Yeah. And like for listeners who don't know, like, Second unit directing, kind of why does that come about, and kind of how do you, how does it go down, and how does the workflow kind of work with the main director?
1: Um, second unit uh, cinematography and second unit directing, it's like you you become a second set of hands, like kind of helping. Make up for pieces that are missed, or add action pieces that the first unit doesn't have time to for, or bringing, uh, having the luxury of being able to wait for the perfect light to get certain aspects of it. So you become, you know, another piece of the puzzle, that uh, another tool in the toolbox that helps make everything better uh, by having more resources and more time to devote to specific scenes and actions.
0: Right, and you and you served as second unit for for David Fincher, right? I did actually. Yeah, I mean, it started on
1: a commercial. Uh, David did a very iconic AT and T commercial about what the future was going to hold, and this was uh, this had to be like in the ninety three or four, and it had tablets, and it had uh, Skype like situations, and it had toll booths with no personnel, like all automatic, and it had a lot of features that we that all came to fruition, but was what was really futuristic at the time, and. There was a part that needed to be shot at the beach, and they wanted to shoot in Santa Monica. And David felt like, with the integrity of the spot and as as meaningful as it was going to be, it had to be in the Caribbean. And so he and I went and uh, I I shot that for him. And that was kind of that. And then uh, my dad's first interaction with Fincher, first collaboration was a Madonna video called Oh Father. It's a black and white video. And it was like, I think the last video on that album that was made. And I remember David calling and saying um, I need to shoot some inserts meet me at Panavision bring your light meters and I was like what <laughs> what <laughs> I was a focus puller at the time you know a camera assistant yeah and so so yeah I lit and shot those and then it just parlayed into that and the, the, the relationship between my dad and I and and the fact uh, that I tried to you know my dad had uh, an illness and he had Parkinson's disease and so there was some like mobility issues and whatnot. And I sure. took as much of the burden off of him as I possibly could. And in doing so kind of learned a craft.
0: Whoa. Right. And what do you think like, you know, took you from working in, in that way to David thinking that, hey, this guy would be really good as a, you know, a sole DP on my next fucking massive project.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's quite a leap, right? Uh, (laughs) I had shot for him, uh, you know, my dad and I started aliens three and the studio, uh, we were in Pinewood studios in London and it was a really brutal winter, uh, which is not good for Parkinson's anyways, but Mm. the studio didn't like, they didn't really want to have anybody, any Americans there. It was kind of a tough time between film industries in America and, and Great Britain. And so there was some animosity about that. And they felt the studio felt as the scope of the movie got larger, uh, we wouldn't be able to keep up, and so they replaced, uh, they fired him. My dad, right? And Fincher, uh, his first movie, um, decided that rather than fight that, it would be better because he would always be vulnerable to them doing something like that. That he let us go, and he could fight it one on one, which was pretty brutal. You know, if you go back on all the stories about his experience with Fox and the and how that movie went down, and the fact that they ended up cutting out you know twenty minutes of it. You know when, mm. when he was traveling back uh to present to them was it's a complicated story but nonetheless i shot with him over there and then i came back and i shot second unit on seven uh and then i shot second unit on the game and he would you know he w- w- kept getting bigger and bigger our palette got bigger and bigger for things to accomplish and he was quite happy and so Uh, it was as much a surprise to me as anybody when I went and met him for Fight Club because I thought I was being interviewed to shoot Second Unit again.
0: Yeah. It must have been a... Yeah, it sounds like a tricky situation, you know, with what happened with your dad and then... But I guess nice that you could be there to kind of help out and make it happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't... We would not have fallen behind and the movie doesn't look the same as it did when my father was shooting it. So the scenes that we did complete, you know, the first three weeks of the film look a lot different than... Uh, how it was completed but we literally i called uh, a kid that i went to film school with who became a very successful director named phil juanu and had told him that we're not doing aliens anymore and he's like great because i'm about to fire the dp on a movie that he hadn't started yet they were just doing makeup tests and so we flew back from london to san francisco and started uh, a movie called final analysis which worked out worked worked out for all of us better and uh, so then, when Fincher came back later, I, I assisted in, and did second unit on those other movies, and then of course on Fight Club, he said, "Hey, read this script tonight." And uh, I think it's the best script I'll direct. I think it's the best script Brad will will be able to act in. Uh, I think it's going to be our generation's kind of Blade Runner in the sense that it'll be it'll define this decade, and uh, and it probably won't make a lot of money and so read it and tell me what you think and of course i didn't need to read it i was you know i tried to keep a straight face but i was like i'm in so Mm. you know
0: yeah Couple of things there, yeah. Like one, um, it's funny that everyone always talks about uh Seven and Fight Club. But I've actually got a lot of love for the game. I don't know how you felt about that film, but I think it's kind of underrated, and it's a good film.
1: Oh no doubt, no doubt about it. It's a it's a really really smartly crafted movie. Um, Harris Savitas photographed it. Uh, I think that was his first film. Uh, it's quite beautiful, and and the suspense and the choices. Uh, it's really good.
0: Hmm. So then, yeah, and you came to work on Fight Club and it's like it's <laughs> it's almost become like a liking Fight Club it feels like cliche because it's become you know known as this this film that everyone like loves and often like is their gateway into cinema but it is such a fantastic film and it still really like holds up when you go and watch it um, and I guess in the same way that uh, The Matrix that was around the same time um, just seemed like very like revolutionary watching like a lot of the, the shots you pulled off it did seem like you were doing a lot of stuff that hadn't really been tried
1: before. Most definitely. Yeah. That was the 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 beginning for us at least of some of the photo geometry, uh taking those textures and still photographs and then combining it with live action and then CG to do all those moves in and out of macro worlds, like helicopter moves through trash cans and through keyholes and down wires to mm. to bombs and all that. And then that combined with some other, you know, there's a French company called Bouffe that was Doing that frozen moment stuff, yeah. And so we we added things to that. For example, like uh, when Brad and Helena are are having the lovemaking scene, yeah. We literally, you, you know, it was a, a camera array of still cameras and film cameras on either end, and you can do helicopter moves around two bodies in the act of making love, which was quite unique and beautiful um also in like ed norton's when he shoots himself at the end of the movie that was a combination of things but it was four live action cameras going high speed and then ed and then prosthetics and then the set and i mean it, it's massive amount of layers but but uh there was a lot of of new technology being um presented in that film
2: how, how long was was the pre-production for the film It must have been a lot of planning
1: well my part of it probably was probably i want to say between six and eight weeks i think like two months you know i know our shoot. you know i know things like the the town that blows up at the end was was century city but reconstructed in other words uh at the very beginning of of my prep we went down and photographed the city and then cut and pasted and added buildings and took away buildings and started started we created the CG world that could collapse later, but that was also our trans light that we built for this set where Helena and Brad have that whole scene at the end of the movie in the high rise, and so that took seven seven months to make that backdrop. <laughs> so those so those kind of like so we started it before, but we ended up shooting. You know, we shot 136 days, so we we you know it fit perfectly in our schedule. But uh, those all things had to happen way beforehand, and. It was kind of the—I wouldn't say it's the beginning, but it was the front of previs, and so there was certain scenes that we previs in order to put all the pieces together, know what, when track would come into frame, when it wouldn't, what parts of the set we actually had to build and wouldn't, and so um, it was kind of a—it was a fantastic uh, evolution and learning experience for sure.
0: Yeah, even now though, like when I when you watch some previews, like it's it's pretty rudimentary, isn't it? Like it's not kind of close to the end end product. I, um, I, but yeah, it would be really great to hear you kind of because that that end end shot of um, Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter there with the city kind of imploding in the background. It would be really great to hear you kind of talk through how that shoot came about from that months and months of pre-production right through to completion.
1: Yeah, you know, and all the layering of, of what's in, in that shot, you know, there's there's so many things going on to, to make it, at least, I mean, I think it would be a lot simpler now, it would be no problem, but sure. and then there were so many plates and layers and composites that had to, had to be done and reflections and not reflections and with windows and without and blacks and no black and green screen and no green screen. And, and I was always a, a fan on film of putting uh, especially at night of putting a, a net like a, like almost like a stocking if you will between the glass and the backdrop and what would happen then is if you had any practical lights twi- tiny little twinkle lights in the backdrop itself or the trans light it gave the illusion of that kind of moisture in the air that moves and so that thing was the monster to dev- to build because. It had to be manufactured in Germany, and it was a hundred something feet long. I mean, it was a massive translate. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about that translate. You do all that prepping, you start it that far ahead of time, and throughout the process, they send you uh, like uh, twelve inches long by two inch wide test strips of what it's going to look like. You know, now you're looking at a strip that's you know like a ruler. And it's going to be 120 feet long, right? So it's not a really big example to, to kind of compare, but you can get tonalities and you can see pros and cons about resolution and darkness and different things. And so we kept going through the process, kept getting closer and closer. Then it gets shipped, then it gets hung, and we are out shooting in the streets. I think we were in downtown LA shooting, and it comes to where we're shooting the next day. We're shooting in the high-rise and we're shooting the translate. We haven't seen it lit yet. It's all been on paper, and so Fincher and I wrap that night, and then drive to Fox Studios, and stand in the set and turn it on. The rigging crew has been rigging, you know, for the last couple of days, and it turns on. and David had this notion that if we used, if we made two translates as opposed to one flat one, we could push one further back, and we'd get some perspective and relief, and it would look more three dimensional than just say a flat screen all the way across the back. So now we have two separate pieces of Translite. It comes up and one is darker than the other and one is bluer than the other. We're shooting the next morning, like, you know, 12 hours from now or nine hours from now we're shooting. (laughs) So I had this idea that, okay, if we, I, you know, I took my meters and I did these kind of calculations. And if we add half CTO, which is a warm color gel to this entire side of the, of the Translite, which is, thousands and thousands of dollars of gels and takes the guys all night long to do it and then change the light bulbs in the lamps that are lighting the other one to bring it down a stop then they should match well when you rent a light from a, from a lighting company, it comes with a globe. If you want to replace the globe, you have to buy the globe, right? And, and there's, there's 75 sky panels on one side and 75 on the other. So 75 light bulbs had to be bought. Another you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And it's just a hunch. Go home that night. Don't sleep very well. Come the next morning. Fingers crossed. Fincher's standing there. Turns on everything matches <laughs> i'm like oh my god i was gonna throw up oh uh, and not fair because not, you know it's just the way the schedule worked out we, you know i mean i suppose if it was a disaster we would have had to figure something else out to shoot and change the schedule and whatever but but uh thank god it all it all worked out so
0: yeah and what like a, what a hell of a conversation as well to try and you know talk to the producer and be like we need to just <laughs> spend this crazy amount of money on bulbs just for this one like shot but yeah <laughs> it ended up being worth it yeah
1: for sure i know
2: i I know, I know there are always loads of problems to overcome on on set all the time uh from what i've seen but um was there anything that was kind of changed like as you went along like or was everything mapped out scene by scene by scene and you had to achieve that exactly or did did things change <laughs> Yeah, actually, because we
0: were speaking to another cinematographer who worked on that um, HBO show, Euphoria. I don't know if you've seen any of it. Yeah. Um, and he was saying, like, the director would, the night before, would be like, ah, the shot list, everything's changing. I don't know, because cause there's an experimental field to fight club. I don't know if there was an element of that or whether you guys were just way more pre-planned.
1: Yeah, I think it would be harder for us to do that with the with the characters that we had, with it being a studio film, with all the entities involved. We, we pretty much had it planned out. I mean, things change and things go longer, or you, you, things happen that, that, that cause uh, the schedule to change, or, or to go another approach, or f- discover better ways of accomplishing something, and things that become unimportant, and other things become more relevant. So you always have to have some flex and flow in it. But uh, th- David pretty much, and he's done this his entire career, comes kind of like from the Hitchcock school in that you do, you make the movie before you start shooting, you do as much Mm. homework and prep and eliminate as many surprises and, and obstacles as you can before you start so that you can actually spend all your creativity at the time and the time that you have and resources making the film.
2: For people who don't know, um, how how would you define the, the role of a DOP?
1: Hmm. Um, well, it I, I think it's changing uh, as we get as we've gotten further away from what the photochemical process used to be and that responsibility as that's not relevant any longer. But you still are the kind of overseer of all the visual aspects of a film, and you are telling and, and and enhancing a director's story and a and a and an actor's performance through visual. Um, aesthetics and and those choices and you're doing it with focus to to dictate where an audience is going to make their point of interest and you're doing it through light and what you're not lighting and you're doing it through lens choices and you're doing it through camera movement and so you are the visual language um, being spoken hand in hand with what the director is uh, eliciting from his actors and what the actors are, de- are are delivering and you also uh are creating an atmosphere that allows those actors to feel more comfortable and, and in the situation to allow them to to give the best like real at heart performances that you can
0: sure and at least for you jeff what's what's your role in the edit when you when the cameras start rolling what's your what's your involvement how does it go down
1: well, I mean, it depends. That that part of it is is completely dependent upon the director you're working with and and whatever that relationship turns out to be. You know, I've had situations where I've been on a movie where uh, it's a very performance oriented director, and she or he would let me do pick the coverage, block out the scenes, um, and more or less. Uh, decide at least the angles that would be put in front of the editor to make those choices. Um, other other directors uh, have it really mapped out. You know, Fincher is pretty pretty rigid. I mean, if you have a better idea and you can show him and prove it, then he's always open-minded to something that will, will make that experience better. But he has an idea about how it's going to go. He has tempo. He has camera movement. He has angles. And so that's something that you talk about ahead of time uh in the prep and so on the shoot day uh it's 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 pretty much assumed unless you discover something that's better or come up with something so uh i think it depends on on the personnel who who you're with and what what is expected of it but i mean on any given project regardless of who it is including david if there's a shot that is wrong or something that we made a mistake that was unavoidable then of course i'm going to (laughs) be (laughs) <laughs> doing everything i can to do to protect the visuals of that you know um since, yeah well, since I, like
0: I recently uh yeah i had a thing with a with a dp i worked with where he was like dude you can't use take three take three it's all wrong and i had to i slowly managed over a number of weeks managed to convince him the virtues of take three why actually it was okay the best one but, well i guess that's kind of the yeah the beauty of the uh the argument around it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we all have,
1: it's funny for me because there's an evolution to it. I mean, at the moment and on that day, there's certain, there's a lot of reasons why you didn't like something, but in the context of a cut, when you've seen that the whole picture come together in the moment and you feel like a, uh, a connectivity and an, and an an emotion, then go with it.
0: Yeah. Going back to um, fight club, there's a, there's a a moment I really love where uh, I think, brad's giving the line like you're not your fucking khakis mm-hmm. and uh there's a the the camera shake right uh, i was kind of interested a a was that how was there any practical there or was it post and you know was that uh was that a you thing was that a fincher thing like how did that come around
1: no that was i i would love to take credit for it but that was a <laughs> david's idea and it was uh in camera oh cool well it's both it's it's uh you know we shook the camera as far right and left as we could keeping in mind that we didn't want to lose more than the perfs and then went back and essentially stabilized it tracked it so that we kept brad in the middle Mm. and the camera slides back and forth or brad slides left and right to the perfs and it feels like the camera's staying still so it was it's pretty simple trick very effective it's something that would be a no-brainer today with with all the tracking technology and software but at the time it was a little bit tricky because you had to guide it back and forth but it pretty cool effect
0: yeah really cool and um when you you know or take take Dave Fincher because you've obviously you've worked with him so much like how when you guys come to collaborate just on like a a day-to-day level do you kind of would it be the occasional meetup where you'd really chew over everything or are you in kind of constant contact, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth on email or text or kind of how does it go down? Um, well, in pre-production, this is, yeah.
1: Yeah. In pre-production, uh, it it's, it's not a constant banter like that. It's more so when we're, we're actually shooting and we always yeah. tend to uh, ride write together and it's always before and after there's a lot of, ability to to discuss approaches or ideas or how to resolve and then of course lunch every day you can go back over what's happening and where you want to end up um but again he's like most of the things are done there's a lot there's less discovery on the shooting day than there is during the prep and he and i and the ad and production designer go out and scout uh relentlessly before we actually do our tech scout with the crew so it's pretty pretty mapped out in our heads what's going to happen where we want things to develop how the scenes are and the only surprise happens if you know a- actors come with and block out something and and you discover a better way of saying something or a better movement of them then then you kind of uh, adjust your scenes to that sure
2: Uh, You're going to have to bear with me on this one because I kind of thought it came to me while we were talking about the camera shaking stuff and how, I'm I'm not quite sure how to word it exactly, but do you think that with today's technology and, you know, effects being, you know, being like unlimited almost, do you think it gives people more choice or do you think it makes things less kind of decisive when people are making films?
1: I think I think both. I think it depends on whose hands you put those tools in. I think with a very creative director or uh, DP or production designer or editor, uh, you you have phenomenal moves and phenomenal connectivity and you elicit emotions that would have been so hard to get before and you get perspectives that engage an audience more now by by point of views or being in the action or, going through something where I think a lot of people can use it to make up for the lack of, a, of an idea or a story, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and throw tricks at it, trying to cover for the absence of substance. So it works both ways.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't want to talk down on it because it's great, you know, the amount of choice there is now. But there was, I guess there was something about like, having more of a certainty that so much kind of practical effects have gone into something. Whereas now everyone's just straight up assumes that this is all, you know, something that's been done in post, which is a little bit of a shame, I guess, but. I think that, that I think it'll sort itself out. You
1: know, I mean, I remember when a Technocrane first came out and we were shooting a lot of music videos and these young directors would ask for a Technocrane and you go, okay, why, or what are we doing with it? Doesn't matter. I just have to have a technocrane on the set because he had a technocrane on the set. <laughs> like and you laugh to yourself, going, okay, but what are we doing with it? What is your idea? It doesn't matter. I just want a technocrane on the set. All right, you've made it. We have a technocrane on the set. Now park the camera over here and shoot.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: so yeah, I think that we as 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 we all discover new ways to utilize some of this technology, people will keep pushing the boundaries and new things will happen. And of course, there'll be people that that are lazy or just don't know, and, and we'll use it in a way that just muffles and kind of covers for, for their lack of uh, substance. Sure.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm a photographer, and I think Lightroom lets you do things that would have taken forever in the darkroom, and it's nice just to be able to rattle through pictures rather than having to spend ages and ages and ages doing something that you can now just do with a brush on on a program really easily. Uh, but, then, but then seeing all those options in those programs, so yeah, it makes you think, like, oh, you know, what could I do to this picture?
1: It's confusing, and there's so many choices. But, but there was something said to be, to, to be at, at that place at sunrise with that light hitting that person's face at that mm. moment and take that single picture. That's magic.
2: Mm. <laughs> and that will never change,
1: will really. it? <laughs> but yeah. it won't change, but I think those days are far and few between now.
0: You know what though? I think at the same, I think people really do appreciate it. You know, and the way that um, BTS videos can like do the rounds now, when people do see that something has been so painstaking and so much time and thought has gone into it, I think people do really appreciate that. It might be only more of the hardened kind of viewers and fans, but um, there is definitely st- something to that for sure. Yep. Yeah. So. Often before these interviews, me and Alan will, will sit and kind of watch a, a film or something just to kind of get us into the headspace. And before talking to you, we'd both realised that we'd both seen Fight Club and Social Network and I guess The Girl with Dragon Tattoo fairly recently. Um, Alan had never seen Gongo and I hadn't watched it for a little while, so we, we watched that today. We, it kind of struck us, like, is a film like Gongo or The Social Network where it's visually more still and seemingly straightforward, is that an easier day at work for you than something like Fight Club or not so much?
1: I think it's the same because it's, it,
0: it,
1: making it look simple or natural is is much harder than doing something dramatic and, <laughs> and, and bold, you know, that... Uh, someone you know a, a backlit person uh, running down an alleyway is, is very theatrical and easy to do but making someone sitting at a countertop in the kitchen and still make it have visual integrity and keeping an audience engaged is a little bit harder and so i always make a joke that my dad uh, uh blade runner didn't get nominated here in the u.s but but got nominated for uh, a bafta uh, and beat both it, because the the years were different in those days, like the qualifying period was different. Beat two Oscar winners here, and one of them was The Mission, which was a beautiful movie. But you know, a, a priest going over a waterfall in the middle of the Amazon jungle is, is quite stunning. Or a church lit at night with a thousand candles is beautiful. But to do a movie like say Blade Runner or Peggy Sue Got Married, which was a a simple story, nostalgic story, is but is stunning and hard and uh that i think it takes it it's a different kind of you bring a different skill set to it i'm not saying one's easier than the other and i'm not taking away anything the mission's a beautiful picture but it's harder to try to create that same kind of visual tension in a in a more um uh, docile
0: kind of environment or an environment that we're all used to it reminds me of how i mean often people when they talk about like the greatest acting I've heard people refer to it as often the awards go to people who do the most acting. And it's, you know, it's the it's the really splashy kind of intense stuff that gets the the praise, whereas sometimes doing doing the more delicate, like everyday stuff is a little bit is a little bit trickier sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of a cinematographer named Harris Savitas. He's not with us any longer, but he did a movie with Gus Van Zandt called Milk. And yeah, <laughs> it was stunningly gorgeous and you yeah so
0: many people have you know i've actually never seen milk for my sins but so many people have said how beautifully that film is shot
1: yeah but you talk to a lot of people that don't understand cinematography and they go well he just used available light you're like oh my god (laughs) there is no available light you moron that's that is his light you know it's like they shot for 12 hours in that one building and it never changed what do you think the available light is but my point is, like, he was so good at not being in the way of those visuals that he didn't
0: get the credit for creating them. Yeah.
2: Did his job too well. He did.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he did. He did. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. If you do your job well enough, it's almost imperceptible sometimes.
1: <laughs> right. And people walk away and go, yeah, it looked really good. And
0: Yeah we got to mention um, this, The Social Network a, a little bit because it's, you know, a great film. You got your Oscar nomination for it. Obviously, your job in a way was to stay out the way a little bit because the dialogue is so rich and intense. And for the regular viewer, you know, they've really got a lot of information to take on board. So if you're, well, the editor as well, if they're cutting too much, you know, it's going to be overwhelming. But you've kind of got to document, I guess, more than like tell a visual story as much. You do, but you would be
1: neglect if you didn't support the dialogue and the uh, and, and the performances with the visuals, yeah. you know? You you push the boundary to make it believable and real, but you push contrast and you push color and you try to make it as interesting as you possibly can. I mean, I, we, we started off, our first day of shooting was, in fact, that opening sequence with the dialogue in the bar between, between uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara, and... Um, it, it literally, once you, you know, the the noise in the bar was mixed high enough where the first lines that they come out with, everybody kind of leans forward in their chairs to see if they can listen better. Obviously, you're not going to listen any better. And slowly, as the, as we get uh, more into the conversation, the background noise fades away a little bit and you can hear what they're talking about. And it's this constant Aaron Sorkin ping pong kind of aggressive conversations that go back and forth. And so yeah you were you you would be in the way and you would be destroying that rhythm if you we're doing you know steadicam moves and cranes up and down and around or anything like that that you have to be reserved you have to let them play within those frames and let that dialogue and that cadence carry that and understand that that's that's the job that's the task at hand and how can you find your signature and your voice within that and after that then it's really you know it's really fun there was certainly plenty of time to be theatrical there's certainly time to have backlight people running over bridges in harvard and there's rowing sequences Mm. and there's all kinds of inner to come later um but you have to create a palette and you have to set the tone for the audience and then you're kind of free to 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 explore and it's kind of like that movie still to this day when i watch it i always check my watch at the end i can't believe it's over already because it just started because there's such a pace to it and, and a rhythm and you kind of like are on your on your edge of your seat the whole time
0: it's so funny you say that because that was my exact thought. I remember when I first heard about the, the film and, and knowing like Finch's work and being a fan of it. And I heard he was doing a, a film about Facebook. I was like, oh, I mean, it sounds like it could be incredibly boring. And then you know I watched it and when I've watched it since, it flies by so fast. It's like somehow you guys made a film that is just essentially people talking in dorm rooms and then in courtrooms but it it is like scintillating and yeah and it has this it has such a pace to it It's, it's incredible
1: yeah it was a very very great methodology and approach and of course Aaron's words are so good and the way David approached it was magical
0: so a lot of um, your collaborators, you know, Aaron Sorkins worked in TV. He did The Newsroom, and Finch has done Mindhunter. Have you done much work in TV? Is that something that interests you? Or? Uh,
1: Aaron asked me to shoot Newsroom, but at that time, I, I didn't want to go off to do that. I, um, I still wanted to focus right. either on features or my commercial career, which I also, with my brother, uh, we co-direct and I shoot. And so that's something that I love to keep alive, for both of us and it's it's a very kind of uh open creative palette for us and it's fun to do and it's fun to work with your brother um mm. but this well we're already in 2020 last year i did my first venture i did a pilot for amazon called tales from the loop it's an original content that was directed by mark romanic who I had worked with before on one hour photo and numerous music videos and commercials over the years.
0: He did did the Johnny Cash music video, didn't he? You didn't uh, work on that, did you?
1: (laughs) I laugh about that because I was, I had just completed a movie called down with love and which had, flown on a red eye after a job to shoot uh, a music video for down with love with renee zeliger and ewan mcgregor and then mark called and said can you fly from atlanta to nashville and uh. and i was just like <laughs> i i couldn't do it i was dead and i just and it's the, it's the, really the only music video i've ever passed on that i regretted because yeah it was so good and magical and i hate that i didn't do it but what, what can you do <laughs>
0: Well, you're a busy man, and that's the, the the difficulty, isn't it? It's like looking at the calendar ahead and, and figuring out the, the projects that you want to do from the ones you can't, and it's like a tough decision, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty content with most of the choices, but that one, that one hurt. I mean, I, th- uh, I think Johnny Escoffier photographed it, and he did win an MTV award for it, and, I just, and it's a great song, and I'm a Johnny Cash fan, and mm. I really don't know what I was thinking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it happens. Yeah. It's
1: the yeah, yeah. I'm not going to yeah. dwell on it, but that one got away. But anyways, so yeah. So we did Tales from the Loop, which is uh, we photographed up in Winnipeg. And it's kind of a – it'll be interesting because it's, it's a Twilight Zone-ish in that you have to think about these things that are happening. But it's done in a very kind of Bergman, Tarkovsky – kind of scandinavian pace and so it'll be interesting to see what a game of thrones crowd thinks of something that you have to think about that doesn't have that kind of pace to it
0: yeah that's a that's a tantalizing venn diagram of tarkovsky bergman and scandy yeah people yeah, will be interested in that
2: <laughs> so jeff what, what what have you been watching recently yeah
0: film and tv
1: uh i don't know, i think my favorite looking movie this year is the joker right i, I just can't i just loved it you know um as best not to sound like i'm tooting my own horn but i saw a lot of like modern fight club in there and there was parts of it where i went damn i wish i could have. i wished i could do that over again in fight club that way you know obviously it's a different era and a different time and that was film and this is this and Uh, It's all different, but I loved the way that movie looked, and I loved the large format, and I loved the DNA lenses, and I just thought it so matched the story, and it's really bold and beautiful.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure Fight Club was a, you know, films like Fight Club, Taxi Driver were probably an influence, you know, it's got that whole (laughs) vibe about masculinity, um, and we've actually got Lawrence Sher, the the DP on it, is actually going to be on the show. So uh, if you have any questions for him, or uh, just, just tell <laughs> we'll ask him if there was some. No, just <laughs> some tell him congr-
1: congratulations and well done. I'm a huge fan of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, what does a day off look like for you, Jeff? When we we spoke to um, Bob Yeoman uh, recently, and we he, he was saying how he he would often just kind of wander around, take some photographs, like whether on set. Which we were quite surprised about because you thought, you know, you'd spend enough time around a camera during, during your day job to really be wanting to taking stills. But he enjoys just doing a little bit of that. What do you what do you like to do when you're off in some part of the world and um, you're not around your family, but you've got some hours to kill? Yeah, I I, I
1: love to still take pictures. Um, I also uh an avid golfer and it kind of is like such a difficult game <laughs> that y- you can't think of anything else but it while you're doing it which is a great kind of escape and and it's the most frustrating horrible game but it's fantastic
0: <laughs> well, i guess you're, you're a guy that likes to be focused because you know a set is all focus and then to to <laughs> To chill out, you're also doing something that requires a lot of concentration, yeah, but
1: it's like there's no nothing else that you can think about. It's only that, so it's 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 a funny thing and and uh it's amazing like how much your mind can wander from the time you start your backswing to the time you hit that ball. Uh, <laughs> you think like nothing can go wrong, and everything goes wrong in that half a second so <laughs> uh, so i I do that sometimes just to keep the frustration going.
0: You've got to meditate, Jeff. I'm a big uh, exponent of that, and I feel like that will keep your mind clear during the backswing. You're probably right. You're probably right.
2: <laughs> well, that maybe it is a form of meditation. In itself. If you're focusing yeah. that hard on something and, yeah. you're, and you're, you're not thinking of anything else, that's kind of what uh, I mean. I, I've never meditated in my life, but it, <laughs> uh, I imagine that that's the point.
1: That that it's is a, That's exactly it. You kind of get lost in that and uh yeah it's good fun you You heard it it
2: here first golf (laughs) is meditation
0: Yep. cool
2: well yeah one question do you do you have uh it's a bit of a geeky one uh to do with lenses Uh uh-huh is there do you have a setup that you really like that you kind of go back to or, or do you just kind of use whatever you you think would suit the project
1: oh well, i i think that's it. It, it i always go into it and let the story dictate to what it, how it wants to be captured or what's the best way to tell that but i do love the like a summer look i just used the dna lenses in south africa and um i tend to shoot on red uh i love the color science that they have but i have great luck on on the uh, Alexa and then we shot the LF down in South Africa and it was quite beautiful. So I think you picked the tool that best serves the project, the story. Mm. It's all mm. about the story. Sure.
0: <laughs> and finally, as we always ask uh, DPs on the show, are you a, like a, a behind the camera guy or a video village guy?
1: Uh, I'm a behind the camera guy for sure. I, uh, when we, when I co-direct with my brother, it's funny because uh, he, uh, relishes he loves being in the group and talking with the agency and the and the clients whereas like i hunker down on the camera and just do my thing and stay there
0: <laughs> god who who likes talking to the client person your brother's uh he's cut from a different mold yeah <laughs> it's
2: obviously a good combination well,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah it takes two you know and i always like i'm i'm busy up here i'm lighting so i can't can't deal with it
0: <laughs> good strategy cool yeah well thanks so much for being on the show today jeff it was uh great to talk with you and thanks for sharing all your your knowledge
1: uh thanks boys i'm happy to be on glad you included me and love your love of cinematography
0: thank you take care cheers boys